Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and welcome back to the Film Literature in the New World Order podcast for the month of October 2016. As promised last month, we are going to be talking about the film Being There, directed by Hal Ashby, starring Peter Sellers, based on the book by Jerzy Kozinski. And what an interesting movie it is. Quite a change of pace from last month's edition of the series where we were talking about the Purge election year. Here we have a very interesting and worthwhile movie. So I hope you did watch the movie in preparation for this conversation. And if you did so, you will be suitably rewarded by our guest and his insights. Our guest should be familiar, I think, to a large portion of the Corbett Report audience. He is Julian Charles of The Mind Renewed at themindrenewed.com, and people might be familiar with him from nothing else if not his interviews of myself, which are in the archives. I'll include the links in the show notes for this conversation in case you're interested, because he is an excellent interviewer in his own right, and I think brings out the best in his interview subjects. So I'm hoping to turn the microphone around on him and put him under the spotlight a little bit today. Julian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thank you very much, James, for inviting me on. And uh, you shouldn't say that I'm going to enlighten people because I don't think I am. I, I maybe know know what I'm doing now with with interviewing, but I'm not sure that I know what I'm doing when it comes to talking at length about movie. Well, <laughs> let's let's find out. <laughs> Actually, this this movie uh, was really recommended to me by yourself on your podcast. You were you had a conversation um, where you were talking about various movies and uh, pop culture works and how they relate to these these types of subject matters that we often talk about in our respective programs. And you talked about the film being there, which I had not seen at the time that I was listening to your podcast, but it sounded intriguing enough that I gave it a try, and lo and behold, it really is... It's a well-made film. It's a very interesting film. It stands on its own, and I think it has some very interesting commentary on the subject of how the world really works and what really lies behind the world of politics, um, even if it does so in light-hearted way i'm not even sure if that's the right way of framing it but i'll i'll turn this over to you why why did this movie catch your attention and why did you bring it to the attention of your own podcast audience i see what you mean about being it being light-hearted um i do think it's a kind of it is it's kind of one big joke in, in a way all the way through the film but it's not just um it's not just a a piece of comedy is it there is a depth to it which uh, no doubt we'll, we'll go to in this in this conversation um i mean the thing that really uh, sort of made me want to talk about it and i'm happy to talk with you about it today is uh, i suppose to be quite honest it's the ending of the film which comes as such a such a shock, uh, really because of the, uh, the the symbolism that's there and casts light upon one's understanding of what one has seen so far in the film. So, I mean, at the ending, you have the uh, the character called Benjamin Rand, who is this um, oligarch, essentially, and uh, he has died, and there is his funeral that's taking place, and the President of the United States is is uh, giving this eulogy, but he's also quoting from Ben Rand's comments, uh, which are quite amusing in their own right. And as this is going on, you have the pallbearers are carrying this coffin towards the, I guess it's the, the family tomb, or maybe family in an extended uh, esoteric sense, I don't know, but it's shaped like a pyramid. And at the top, it has the this eye of Horus, and uh, you think, what on earth is going on here? And as that coffin is going towards the tomb, there are these people who seem to be their elitist individuals. They're obviously uh, kingmakers or, or president choosers, and they're having this very quiet conversation as they're carrying the coffin. 
who is going to be the the next president of the United States? And they're uh, whispering backwards and forwards in there. And uh, they're saying, well, we, we can't really have the same guy, you know. How about this main character of the movie who is called Chance? And we'll talk about him in a, in a few minutes, no doubt. And um, they're, they're, they're basically saying, well, you know, we don't know anything about Chance. He doesn't seem to have a history. He doesn't have a past. Uh, he, uh, he hasn't got anything that anybody could uh, blackmail him with. Um, he's ideal. He's a non-entity. We can sort of paint him as we like. Yes, let's have him. <laughs> let's put him forward. He's, he's our man. And uh, obviously the film goes on and there are some further jokes, which we'll discuss in a minute. Um, but I just thought that scene um, opens up a window into one's interpretation of the whole movie. And the, kind of in retrospect, you, you realize this one big joke that's been going on um, is a commentary upon power and class and privilege and all these things and how we as people who are involved in the societies that we we live in are influenced by um, opinion makers and the media and our, our thoughts our own thoughts are we are we molded by what we see and therefore uh, <laughs> interpret to those who are presented to us as power figures and politicians and the like are, are we molded in that interpretation to to say oh these are really important people yes i'm going to give them their i'm going to give them my vote and that sort of thing the whole thing is like a, a a load of questions that i think are that come through that final scene that's that's how it works for me anyway and uh so that, that, that's essentially what made me really interested in the movie to answer your question uh, I, that is an excellent analysis, and I, I agree completely with your experience of the end of the film uh, changing your perception of the beginning or the what, what has come before. I think all of those mm. elements were there, the, the satire, the commentary, were there, and but they mm. did seem more like a joke, like like a type of comedy that was playing out until that ending scene in which it's really more thrust into your face what what this is really um gesturing towards and then of course the final final image <laughs> interesting uh, in and of itself where he walks out onto the yeah. water and uh, uh again we'll we'll probably circle back to that but you do gesture to the fact that this is centering around this character named Chance the Gardener and for the naughty listeners in the audience who haven't seen the movie perhaps we can just go a little bit into a summarization of who is Chance the Gardener and how does he stumble into this strange world of uh, political kingmakers? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to uh, be as brief as I can about this. Um, okay, so we have this character called called Chance, which is a rather interesting name, and uh, it's played by Peter Sellers, one of my heroes. And he's, he's kind of this – he's a sort of simple-minded – I don't know why I like that that phrase, but that's how most people, I think, describe him. A simple-minded, um, middle-aged man, roughly about 50 years old, you know, and uh, he lives in this well-appointed house in Washington, D.C. with a character called the Old Man, who you, you don't get to see until the old man's on his deathbed. <laughs> um, and he also lives with this black maid called Louise, who provides Chance with his food, and he spent his whole life right from a child in this house he's never left the house and interestingly he 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 spends most of his time doing one of two things or in fact two things at the same time very often watching tv and tending the walled garden of the house and that's it basically apart from normal bodily functions etc and um you know we don't don't really know in the film why he's there we know more in the book actually um uh, he uh, his his mother died at at birth and uh the old man will not, not tell him who the father was so he's, he's been there right from birth really 
And he gets all of his information about the world from watching television and from interacting with the garden. So he's he's everything for him is only real if it appears as flickering things on the television or the natural cycles going on with the seasons. That's basically it. And um, in the book, it says um, this is a little quote here. As long as one didn't look at people, they did not exist. Of course, this is speaking from within his mind. They began to exist as on TV when one turned one's eyes on them. So that's how he saw the world. And, um, you know, when when I first saw this movie, you, you know, you can imagine just from what I've described there that it seemed really sad, really depressing. <laughs> that's that's how it came over. Because it's, you know, it starts with this middle aged man in bed and um, Schubert's unfinished symphony is, is being played on this TV screen that's in his bedroom. That's quite an interesting choice of music. There's lots of interesting music that's that's, uh, chosen for this film. So it's the unfinished symphony. So perhaps saying something about this unfinished character. Anyway, he's just, uh, he just wakes up and he looks blankly at the screen and it's like super realist um, exploration of what it is to be really lonely and depressed. That's that's how the film comes over. But as it goes on, it becomes more clear that it's uh, this gradually unfolding joke and at the same time, a deeper commentary throughout the film. Um, it's a very weird experience, I, I, I found. Anyway, so the old man dies, and this character, Chance, um, doesn't really understand what's going on, and he uh, he's asked by lawyers, does he want to make a claim against the, the house? Does he want to um, state how, how it is he's been living here all these years? Has he got any proof that he was employed as a gardener, etc., etc.? He hasn't got any proof of anything whatsoever. He doesn't seem to have any any history, no birth certificate or anything, and, and so he has to leave the house. He goes out into the into the real world, as it were, and um, there's there's more in the film at this point than there is in the book, but um, he uh, it's because he's so addicted to television, he walks by a television shop and he, for the first time, sees himself in the, in a television that's actually in the window of the shop because there's CCTV that's recording him, and that's a kind of um, illumination. Well, it, sh- it should be an illumination mo- moment for him. It should be a, se- a sort of self-awareness moment, but of course it isn't really because he is this weird kind of blank character. So he's, he's not just simple-minded. He's he's really a blank, like a slate upon which people can write, which I think is quite an important um, point in the whole movie. So he there's this kind of turning point in the film but as this happens he he what he, he just stumbles backwards and he he's knocked by the the limousine of uh, um the wife of an oligarch essentially and uh, she's very concerned that uh, he might want to claim uh, against the family or perhaps bring the family into disrepute so she's very concerned about him takes him back to the big mansion um where the oligarch lives mr rand benjamin rand and uh, her name is Eve in the film, although E.E. in the book. Um, and uh, she, uh, Benjamin Rand is, is very impressed by this character because essentially he just writes on to this blank character called Chance, um, his own prejudices and his own de- desires and his own way of looking at the world. And, and um, Chance, who's now called Chancey Gardner, and I'll have to explain why, <laughs> um, in the limousine while going to the house, um, uh, Peter Sellers, a chance is uh, is uh, offered a, I think it's a, a drink of brandy in the car by uh, Eve, and he accepts, and because he's he's not familiar with uh, alcoholic beverages at all, and so she asks him, you know, well, what's your name? And um, he says, well, he's about to say Chance, of course, um, Chance the Gardener, but 
he, he sputters on this alcohol and, and it, she thinks he says Chansey Gardner. So she writes on her own um, misunderstanding of him onto his character, just like everybody else does in the film. And Benjamin Rand is very impressed by this blank character who he, he mistakes for a businessman. And then the film goes on with chance um, unwittingly going up the social ladder meeting the president of the united states um going on television being uh, quite imp- you know, the actual population of the united states really impressed by this guy who talks supposedly knowledgeably about the economy although all the time he's actually referring to the garden because that, that's what he's familiar with he talks about the seasons and plants growing in the garden and that's ex- that's misunderstood as a metaphor for the economy um and uh so uh, eventually uh, there, there's this uh, kind of romantic attachment between um, Rand's wife and Chauncey Gardner, essentially because the the dying Rand, who has got this rare blood disease, wants his wife to be happy and encourages her to uh, form a romantic attachment to Chauncey Gardner, who he's so impressed with. And you can see that this character is just being built up, this blank is being built up and up and up, and um, to the point where, of course, Benjamin Rand does eventually die, and it looks like Chance is somehow going to take over the the whole estate and um as we said at the beginning of the conversation gets tipped to be the next president of the united states by this uh, sort of esoteric group of elitists mm. um and well right at the end then there is this business of him walking out onto the water and that's something that people have criticized um because it does seem to be a, a big change in the movie there it's <laughs> as if you know um it's as if he's no longer a blank slate who is misunderstood by everybody. Now he is, well, what's the director saying? That he is actually some sort of guru? It, it's, it's a weird, so it's, it's a weird moment right. at that point. Or it could be but a I commentary, like it. it could be a commentary to the effect of, well, these people who come along in history and talk about gardening metaphors and are put on pedestals as superhumans are maybe a commentary on that. But at any rate, it is such a, very jarring way to end the movie. I mean, it's not like that is yeah. the point at which we sus- ha- are forced to suspend disbelief. <laughs> Clearly, the entire movie <laughs> has been quite uh, silly in a lot of ways, but it, it has certainly adhered to most, uh, you know, physical principles, if nothing else. And uh, that is such That's a, right. a yeah. moment of of real cha- uh, change in the tone that, as we say, I think is contributory to that experience of going back and having to sort of reevaluate your your sense of what the movie was about. Because I think you're right, it does build up as as a type of joke. And if it was a broad joke, it, one would expect that he would be forced into a situation where he would be exposed and he wouldn't know what to say and everything would come crashing down. Or perhaps he would, you know, somehow say just the right thing again and, you know, propagate him to a different sphere or whatever. But I think the the story ends at just the right place at the point at which they're going to try to do this. I don't want to see them, you know, trying to thrust him onto the political stage and all of that. I don't think that would have been a a much broader satire. But I think yes, that we, would have been terrible. I agree with you. Yeah. 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 But I, I think we do have to try to pin this down to some sort of genre, at least to try to make sense of what's happening here. And I think satire is the appropriate framing device for this. And I'll actually point listeners to a uh, to Roger Ebert's uh, uh, evaluation of the film from his Great Movies collection. He wrote this in 1997, so almost 20 years after the the movie came out. And uh, I think he pointed out quite, quite aptly what this movie 
is essentially about, although there are obviously many tangents here, but he says, satire is a threatened species in American film, and when it does occur, it's usually broad and slapstick, as in the Mel Brooks films. Being There, directed by Hal Ashby, is a rare and subtle bird that finds its tone and stays with it. It has the appeal of an ingenious intellectual game, in which the hero survives a series of challenges he doesn't understand, using words that are both universal and meaningless. But are chances sayings noticeably less useful than when the president tells us about a bridge to the 21st century? Sensible public speech in our time is limited by one, the need to stay within the confines of the 10-second TV soundbite, two, the desire to avoid being pinned down to specific claims or promises, and three, the abbreviated attention span of the audience, which, like Chance, likes to watch, but always has a channel changer poised. If Chance's little slogans reveal how superficial public utterance can be, his reception reveals still more. Because he is wasp, middle-aged, well-groomed, dressed in tailored suits, and speaks like an educated man, he is automatically presumed to be a person of substance. He is, in fact, socially naive. You're always going to be a little boy, Louise tells him. But this leads to a directness that can be mistaken for confidence, as when he addresses the president by his first name, or enfolds his hands in both of his own. The, the movie argues that if you look right, sound right, speak in platitudes, and have powerful friends you can go far in our society. And I think this points out uh, at least two important aspects of what's going on in the satire, one of which is the the appearance really does make the man, and people will assume so much from the appearance and the way someone presents themselves to you. And the other part is the way the medium is the message, and in the TV-dominated 10-second TV soundbite uh, era of reporting and, and understanding our world, it really is meaningless universal, vague, comfortably appealing statements like talking about the economy in terms of a garden that, that has the most appeal to the widest audience and thus will become the most politically popular. I think that's, that's obviously, I think, two of the prongs of this satire. And um, I just want to see if, what you think about the idea of framing this as broadly a satire. I think so. I'd like to... I think you have, in a sense, covered what I'm about to say, but perhaps just stretch it a little bit further in that I think it's also I think it's also a parable, um, a satirical parable that is a bit of a warning to us as well. So you have that business about the um, the medium and the, and the message, uh, as you've been talking about. Um, and I think actually one of the things it's saying to us is that the images that we receive through television in particular, but obviously not just that, um, when they are controlled by those who perhaps should not be in control of them, um, they are actually conditioning us to interpret the world in a certain way. So we're not just watching those images um, in a controlled way ourselves necessarily. We're, we're receiving those passively so that when we see somebody who is dressed the right way, talks the right way, etc., we are tempted to evaluate those people as we've been conditioned to evaluate them so i think it's a warning for all of us that you know who, who controls the media is actually controlling our perception of those that they're actually putting forward into positions of power and because they look right we'll say oh yes that's who i'm that's the kind of person i would expect to be in power i will give them my assent that's and just a I little extension a, i think another aspect of that is that it seems to be a commentary on the the richest and most powerful people in some ways seem to be the easiest to fool because they are expecting, they are projecting their own wit, acumen, mm. intelligence, whatever on, onto this blank slate in a way that 
perhaps someone like Louise, the maid, um, would not. And mm. there is a, that poignant scene where Chance ends up on TV uh, through a ridiculous series of events. And she, she says, look, it's a white man's world. You know, he's, he's as <laughs> yeah, stupid lovely. as a, a child. And he's up on TV talking to the, uh, talking to the president. So uh, yeah, sure. there is, there's certainly there's that commentary going on as well. But let's, let's mm. get into the, the meat and potatoes then. If this does, of course, revolve around Benjamin Rand... What an interesting choice of name for that character, Rand, Absolutely. of course. And yes, uh, being yes. this oligarch industrialist, I, th- I would say that one of the, I mean, I don't think it's a direct parallel or anything, but perhaps one of the templates for Rand would be a Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller <laughs> Sr., who in fact was buried in a cemetery or interred in a cemetery with a giant obelisk on top. And you can go and visit the John D. Rockefeller obelisk where people lay dimes because, of course, he was famous for having carefully staged PR events towards the end of his life, giving out dimes to young children because he was such a wonderful old man. Um, But yes, there's this giant obelisk, um, Egyptian obelisk at his (laughs) gravesite, which one wonders if, if anyone has really thought about the significance thereof. But at any rate, it's put quite in your face in a very visceral way in this film, as you say. Um, but uh, obviously, this is one of the oligarchical rulers of the United States. He he says, I've been described as a kingmaker. He meets with the president and tells, you know, gives him advice on his speech and things like this. So we start to see a bit of that. And then, of course, as you say, in the final scene with the pallbearers, ultimately deciding who will be the next president of the United States and trying to decide on Chance the Gardener are kind of seeming to decide on Chance the Gardener precisely because he doesn't seem to have much of a past, which, of course, again, is another, I think, commentary, which uh, so much of this movie, I think, resonates even more a couple of decades later. There's the aspect of the the, uh, the dumbing down of society through the television um, medium as the way of portraying this in little sound bites which I think is obviously played out and is obviously coming to fruition with this reality TV show of a selection cycle in 2016 in the United States. But also the idea of a relative unknown with a murky past, well, that's all the better because you can't really, you know, drudge anything up from his past, seems to have been what played out essentially with the hope and change takeover of 2008 with Barack Obama, who has a relatively murky past and has a, a, a lot of secrecy surrounding a lot of his early years and childhood and uh, even his university career. Mm-hmm. Big question marks over that, which were never really solved. And <laughs> still... Could, could was, I? Could I? Yes, please yeah. do. I just, I, I, just, uh, I dragged up a, a quote, actually, because that was in my mind as well. And I don't know whether people have read it, but there is an article written in 2013 by Wayne Allen Root called Barack Obama, the Ghost of Columbia University. And uh, there's a paragraph here, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Do you mind if I read it? Please go ahead. All right. Uh, I just returned from New York, where I attended my 30th Columbia University reunion. I celebrated my, with my esteemed classmates, everyone except Barack Obama. As usual, he wasn't there. Not even a video greeting, not a personalized letter to his classmates, nothing. But worse, no one in our 30th reunion ever met him. The President of the United States is the ghost of Columbia University. I am a graduate of Columbia University, class of 1983. That's the same class Barack Obama claims to have graduated from. We shared the exact the same exact major, political science. We were both pre-law. It was a small class, about 700 students. The political science department was even smaller and closer-knit, maybe 150 students. I thought I knew or met at least once or certainly saw in classes every fellow poli-sci classmate in my four years at Columbia, but not 
Obama. No one ever met him. Even worse, no one even remembers seeing that unique, memorable face. Think about that for a minute. Our classmate is president of the United States. Shouldn't someone remember him or at least claim to remember him? It's an amazing paragraph. <laughs> it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And it really does seem a uh, chance, chance the gardener type of situation, um, which I think uh, again, it's it's the 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 phenomenon of satire. Of ultimately, um, if you live long enough, you will see the satire come to literal fruition in a lot of cases. <laughs> although, stra- although strangely, he's a kind of a, sort of a mix between uh, George W. and uh, Obama, isn't he? He has the, as it were, the simplicity of George W. But the uh, the obscurity of Obama. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Well, um, so I, I think that I mean clearly there's that aspect of it going on, but. Let's let's look at some of the uh, the underlying basis for this this world of being there, which is clearly run by these oligarch oligarchical figures, these industrialists. And you note that you had read the book version of this. I have, yes, that's right. Can you can you talk about some of the the differences? Is is that aspect of it fleshed out in any more detail in the book version? Less detail. Certainly. I mean, at the end, there there isn't the the scene that uh, you know, as I, as I said, really inspired me to um, you know want to talk about this movie. Well, that scene isn't there in the book. There, there's a there's a a bit of it. There's the, a little meeting between. They're, they're clearly people of of great influence, and I think they're talking about who should be the next vice president. Um, but it's a very short chapter at the end, and there's no, it's not at the funeral and. There's no walking on water or anything like that. So although actually I do think the film is very faithful to the book, but they've extended it slightly, with extended some of those themes, and uh, obviously they've had to change things to make it work cinematically, but I think it's pretty faithful. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know anything about Jersey uh, Kaczynski's biography? I know a few things. Um, I mean, he's a Polish-American novelist. He had Jewish parents. Um, I mean... He was therefore around the you know the time of the the Second World War, um, living with his family in a, in a state of fear, and uh, you know they were they were helped by local people. People, um, Catholic priest helped them um, forged a baptis- baptismal certificate for him, um, and so they you know, they did escape the Holocaust because of this help they received. So, um, and there are a number of things about his life which I think suggest that. He saw in Chansey Gardner something autobiographical, perhaps. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, only slightly. I mean, he um, he studied history. Um, he uh, he became an academic of sorts. He served in the Polish army. He uh, he wanted to get out of the um, Soviet bloc area. So he uh, apparently. Um, he forged some letters from non-existent Soviet authorities, and he created a fake foundation that would sponsor him to go abroad. And he, he managed to get out. Um, he then did odd jobs in the U.S. I think I think he drove a truck for a while, but he then retrained at columbia university funnily enough um and he won lots of grants to do writing he then actually became a lecturer in the state lecturer in the states as well even places like yale princeton other universities um he married um uh, and um, this is interesting an american steel heiress in 1962 um she then died and left him out of her will and uh, then he married again, and this is also interesting, a member of the Bavarian nobility. 
So you know what I mean? He had a very yes. strange... Well, an extremely you know, unlikely yeah, yeah. biography in some ways, and uh, yes. made all the more by, uh, unlikely because apparently he was a congenital liar who um, not many people were ever able really to come to the truth or falsity of a lot of the stories he told about his earlier mm-hmm. life. Or even his ongoing life. Um, and yep. I get this from a couple of different sources that I want to just talk a little bit about because they do t- touch on those interesting parts of his biography. Um, there's a uh, there's an article from 2007 called The Rise and Fall of Jerzy Kaczynski, which is written by Philip Routh, which notes uh, his marriage, as you say, to uh, Mary Howard Weir, Weir, the widow of a steel magnate. Um, who had come to admire his academic writing, and that led to their first meeting. And she employed him to catalog the books in her library, and they ended up getting married for a few years anyway. But that's when he apparently was introduced to some of the types of figures that perhaps he was satirizing in uh, being there, including Henry Kissinger, who was perhaps one of the uh, the people that uh, that he, he hobnobbed with. Uh, this, again, from... Um, the rise and fall of Jerzy Kaczynski, quote, Away from the public spotlight at dinner and cocktail parties held in New York penthouses, Kaczynski was on a first-name basis with the famous Henry Kissinger, fashion designer Oscar de la Renta, theater critic John Simon, Senator Jacob Javits, and also with the anonymous bankers and industrialists whose decisions drive the world's economy. He was often the center of attention, for he, ha- for he had the gift of beguiling. And uh, it gets even stranger from there, in fact, um, uh, there was a, a biography that came out in 1996 that was re- reviewed in the Los Angeles Times by Julia Block Frey called Lying, A Life Story, <laughs> the biography of Jerzy Kaczynski. And uh, that that review opens by saying he loved to tell outrageous lies, particularly, particularly to the rich, intellectual and famous. They were so eager to be entertained, he explained, that they were they willingly suspended disbelief and they were so confident of their superiority that they deserved to be played for fools court gesture to his powerful American friends. That's how Jerzy Kaczynski sometimes referred to himself. So we have a a man who seemed to be bragging about pulling the wool over the eyes of the likes of Henry Kissinger and, uh, you know, anonymous bankers and industrialists, because they are they are uh, easily played for fools because they tend to think of themselves as superior and thus they can't be they can't be fooled by a mere you know polish immigrant like this guy uh, i think there must be some truth to that that idea i don't know about the stories per se of uh, you know what what particularly he was saying to them but the idea that these these types of rich and powerful people are probably the easiest to dupe because they are so full of themselves and so confident in their own abilities i think that mm. probably plays a large part in the type of satire we see playing out in in the movie, anyway, I haven't read the book myself, so I don't know how biting that satire is, but it certainly does play a, a pretty large role in the movie. Yes, that's absolutely right, yes. I mean, Benjamin Rand himself is exactly that, isn't he? He's, he is he's kidding himself, there's no doubt about it. He is seeing in chance what he wants to see. Um, you know, I think that actually, you know, when I go back to some of these quotes here by Guzinski, it, it it is interesting that it, it bears out some of the things that you've just said there. I mean, I have here um, 
can just quote here. As I have no habits uh, that I require maintaining, I don't even have a favorite menu. The only way for me to live is to be as close to other people as life allows. Not not much else stimulates me and nothing interests me more. So he did have this very keen interest in studying other people. And then he goes on, and this is another quote from him, writing fiction is the essence of my life. Uh, whatever else I do revolves around a constant thought. Could I, can I, would I, should I use it in my next novel? I have no children, no family, no relatives, no business or estate to speak of. My books are my only spiritual ac accomplishment. And no doubt there's hyperbole there, you know, but I, I get the impression from that that he was living inside a, a novelization process <laughs> throughout his life, you know, and, and, and doing... Um, what, in a sense, is his satire being there criticizes other people for doing? I, th I think he did it himself. Indeed. Well, there's another layer to this onion, because apparently there is significant question about Kaczynski's own authorship of this book and the other books yes. that he wrote. That's right. <laughs> because yeah. it came out uh, in the 1980s, the Village Voice and others started to uncover the fact that he had used editors, in quotation marks, uh, for his books that may or may not have been ghostwriters or may or may not have, at the very least, translated his books from Polish into English, because apparently he could barely spell or write in English. <laughs> and, oh, um, right. and so it, that might have been another aspect Gosh. of this pulling the wool over <laughs> everyone's eyes. Uh, it, it, it's never been, I think, definitively <laughs> determined that these books were all ghostwritten, but uh, certainly the, the suggestion mm. is there, and some of these editors have come forward saying that they did work with him. And uh, the idea is that he, he had the ideas for the, the, the stories, but basically they were fleshed out by these essentially ghostwriters mm. who were paid by him to, to do it. Um, well, that that is very interesting because he was he's also being accused of plagiarizing ideas. Yes, <laughs> so yes. uh, maybe he didn't even have the idea as well, uh, which is fascinating because there is this uh, a book called The Career of Nicodem Dismas. Yes. I don't know how you pronounce yes, that. Yes. Um, so, which is very popular over in, in in Poland, apparently. So, I mean, just looking at the. Uh, the the rundown of the story here in very brief. There are so many similarities to the the chance character. Um, so an unemployed man um, from the sticks goes to Warsaw to find work. He uh, he finds a lost invitation to a high society party. He, he's got this tuxedo, so he decides, well, I can I can go to that. So he goes to that and he meets an MP who um, he, who is impressed by him and he impresses lots of people. He's then introduced to a rich uh, landowner who was a former con man. Um, and, uh, and that landowner makes him manager of his estate. Um, then the, the, the rich man's wife falls in love with him. And thereafter, he, he rises up the, the social ladder, political ladder. Um, so you know, there are loads of similarities there. Uh, so it's very suspicious. Indeed. Um, it's just... It's very interesting. And in fact, it almost seems like perhaps we sitting here and analyzing this story in terms of Kozinski's biography, maybe the maybe the final uh, uh, people to be made fools of by Kozinski, <laughs> in a sense, if it, <laughs> yeah. this is all a stolen story that he didn't even write anyway. <laughs> Um, I guess it's all folding in on itself, isn't it? It's getting <laughs> our experience. <laughs> Indeed. Well, then, okay, let's let's circle back then to the, uh, the, the operative part of this story for us, and I'm sure the audience out there, this, this idea of the, the oligarchs who want to put in the most convenient political puppet uh, for, from their perspective, um, obviously for controlling the economy from behind the scenes, controlling the, the country from behind the scenes. And then this final image of uh, Chance walking out into the water, onto the water, as if he were a Christ-like figure. Um, mm. 
Now, how do we, so how do we situate ourselves in that? What do we as the audience, what should we take away from this? Is this simply a, someone with perhaps potentially some insider knowledge of the people who really run things behind the scenes in the United States, trying to lift the veil on that curtain? But then again, as you say, that wasn't even particularly part of the book. It was uh, added for the film version. Uh, is this meant to be a, is this meant in a way to undermine that idea? Oh, this is just silly. Look at how silly this is. And look at how, you know, when he's walking on water, it's clearly just all a metaphor for something. This isn't how the things really work. It, what is the effect of this on A, the general audience, and B, what should we take away from it as more informed audience, I hope? Good heavens. Uh, that's a huge <laughs> question. Um, and of course, I, I, I'm going to say, I, 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 perhaps I overstated it. I don't remember now. No, there is something of of this um, critique of the oligarchy in the book. I just don't think it's as stark as it is in the film. Um, it's just extended in the film, but it's certainly there. Um, but therefore, perhaps, in that it isn't quite so much of the book, perhaps one be justified in thinking that was less of the original idea. Um, that might be true. Um, it's very difficult to say what would be the take-home message about the book. It's working on so many different levels. There are so many th different things that are being said. I mean, there are so many commentaries on this film out there um, with wildly different ideas. I mean, I came across an esoteric reading <laughs> of, of, of the film, which I, I didn't find at all convincing. And in fact, so unconvincing, I can't even remember anything about it, to be honest. Um, but, you know, people do pick up on different elements of it. And there is... Also, I mean, it is related to the main point that we've already, I think we've already discussed about the film, but it's, it's a kind of sub idea, which has to do with some quasi religious uh, symbolism. And of course, the presence of uh, Nietzsche's critique of morality and religion is also in there. But I don't think it's particularly Nietzschean either. Um, I don't know if you want to discuss all that kind of thing. But I mean, there are references to 2001, <laughs> um, which, which has the music of Alza Sprach Zarathustra, mm, which is, right. which is yes, Strauss's yes, tone yes, poem, yes, yes. working on the idea of, of the work by Nietzsche and etc. There are loads of themes right. in that. In fact, I didn't. I did note that as it was playing, I thought, "Why on earth are they? Mm. Is this? A, I mean, are they? They're clearly evoking in the history of cinema. Mm. When you hear that theme, you are clearly thinking of 2001. But I couldn't yeah, figure the, out exactly what role it was playing in the movie at that point. As I recall, that's when he first leaves the house and is basically walking right. around Washington D.C. for the first time and seeing its dilapidated state. And suddenly, thus right. Zarathustra is playing in the background. <laughs> I, I didn't really understand yes. the, the significance of that reference well i can't claim to have a full understanding of it i can only you know sort of share with you that the ideas that have been you know i've formulated um provisionally about it um so i mean this music is as i say from richard strauss's tone poems it's just the beginning of it which people will be familiar with that fanfare music but it's it's reworked as a sort of jazz funk style um by the composer of the film and i think that's that's done partly because he's coming out into the real world and He's, he's had this sheltered it, it, sort of upper middle class existence inside the house and garden. And now he's coming out into what is now a very run down um, um, streetwise kind of existence with some gangs on the street and that kind of thing. And so I think that the funk jazz um, um, right. so joins his, those two his things version together. Of the monolith but, moment is encountering the real world instead of the television world. Well, I, yeah, yes. But I think the main monolith moment is when he gets to the TV shop. Yeah. Um, so let me just just um go back just a second he, he's uh 
I think we have to bring in some of the religious symbolism here to make sense of what's being kind of said. And, and I think we do have the, you know, the the allegory of the Garden of Eden um, with the garden because he's he's a gardener, as Adam, you know, is the, the sort of priestly figure in the Garden of Eden um, uh, who tills and keeps the ground. And we have, of course, later in the film, we have Eve, who is the, the character with who, with whom he doesn't actually form a romantic uh, entanglement, but that's what she wants anyway. So he's, she is likely, you know, the Eve character there and he is ejected. He's ejected from the uh, garden. Um, The old man has died. So we there have the Nietzschean sort of God is dead idea. So now chance is going out from his um, simplicity with Adamic simplicity. One might say um, going out into finding himself in now the, the difficult hard world outside of the garden. Um, and he immediately, um, in the book, it's very immediate. There are a few things in the film that are added, but in the book, it's pretty pretty quick. He's going past a TV shop, and he sees in, in the window a television for sale, but it's showing him himself. He sees himself. He comes to a kind of self-awareness. Uh, but he doesn't, because he's a blank, so he doesn't really, but there's a potential to come to a self-awareness at that point. Um and we just had the Alza Sprachazaratustra music there and the, the kind of uh, the death of God kind of idea, the Nietzschean uh, idea, you know. Uh, and so, um, and it's connoting, of course, 2001, where at the end, you know, we have the cosmic child who's who's born at the end of this kind of evolutionary process. There are so many ideas going on here, and I can't help <laughs> thinking that it's saying that the chance is somehow... Mm. Um, <laughs> coming into his true self or he's having the opportunity to come into his true self at that point. But the thing is, it's, I don't think it's Nietzschean. It's almost like a, as, as much um, an unraveling of some religious ideas as it is unraveling of a critique of those ideas because chance he doesn't become an ubermensch. Right, exactly. He, yes. he, he's just a blank. So even that reading, that perspectival kind of reading of reality itself is deconstructed. He's just He just continues blankly through the film and it's everybody else who reads onto him what they want. And so, you know, I, I, I feel that the film is is all about this business of reading what you want to mm-hmm. onto who is presented to you and saying, look, I think it's saying to us, you know, be careful as you're doing that, that these are really your own thoughts that you're projecting onto yes. this person who's presented to you. Be careful that your thoughts that you think are your thoughts are not coming from the oligarchy, as it were, or the powers that should not be, who are informing your mind, who are molding your mind through the media, through TV, whatever it is, and you think, ah, yes, this is the person I should respect, this is the person I should give my vote to, this is the person, etc., etc. Be careful that you are really thinking for yourself. Yeah. Now, maybe yeah. that is my reading of it, and mm-hmm. I may be wrong. Maybe Kaczynski is saying, you know, uh, uh, and, and Lindsay <laughs> um, is saying, uh, uh, sorry, um, Ashby is saying, look, um, you make of it what you like. Um, so maybe I'm just doing that. Maybe well, but, but uh, Jesus of, of this text, you know, rather than exegesis. Right. Well, but on the, on that note though, it is interesting. You come to essentially the same conclusion as, as Roger Ebert, who uh, in the, in his summary comes to the, the conclusion, the movie's implications are alarming. Is it possible that we are all just clever versions of chance, the gardener that we are trained from an early age to respond automatically to given words and concepts that we never really think out much of anything for ourselves, but are content to repeat what works for others in the same situation. And it really does, I think, give the thoughtful viewer pause to reflect on those questions if uh, they choose to do so. In that context, then, 
do we read the final, I think probably most famous line of the film, life is a state of mind. Do we read that then as a, a glorification of that concept? We should embrace the fact life is a state of mind and as strive to be a chance, the gardener, or is it meant to satirize that idea and to show the, the hollowness of it? Yes, I think it works on different levels. I did initially when I heard that, obviously I thought it was funny and it is funny. There is the kind of mystic element to it. Life is a state of mind. So if you, you know, in a kind of new agey way, if you think hard enough, you could even walk on water. You know, you can mold reality kind of thing. But then there is a deeper um, analysis of that where I think it is actually saying to us, yes, indeed, um, life is a, is a, for you is about your state of mind. Be careful how you use it, how you interpret reality. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, I think this is why the ending works. And I've so many people say that they don't think it doesn't work, but I think it does because I think at that moment, the whole thing is flipped around onto us and we're invited to, to interpret that last scene completely on our own because it jars so much with the rest of the film. Although it does weirdly continue some of those quasi-religious sim- symbol things yeah. because, I mean, within Christian theology, of course, Jesus would be seen as far as the, Paul the Apostle is concerned as the second Adam. So you have a link there to the beginning. I don't know how much Christianity would have you know, thought along those lines. And he gave parables about gardening, so there you go. Absolutely, yeah. But it sort of flips at that point, and I wonder whether at that point we're being we're being challenged to look, you know, beyond the the joke that's there, and um, you know, the challenge is, what do you make of this incongruous scene? Life is a state of mind. Pay attention to how you are actually interpreting it. Yeah. Well, it certainly it it obviously and and it completely asks the viewer to. To at least try to make something of this movie more than just a joke um, to reflect on something. It, it certainly is that, that kind of incongruous moment. I, I quite enjoyed that actually, but yes. I understand a lot of people probably are looking yeah. for a more yeah. simple and straightforward narrative and are not going to get it here, but that's fine by me. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I thought it was quite a well done movie at any rate for, for what that's worth. And it certainly did have embedded in it quite a bit of social commentary and satire, which as I say, <laughs> only becomes more stinging and biting as, as time moves forward. And uh, as we see, as I say, the, perhaps the fruition, the culmination of this uh, TV soundbite culture in the election cycle we see going on right now. So a lot to take in from this. But uh, I think that pretty much runs the gamut of what I wanted to talk about today. Is there any other aspects of this you wanted to run through? Oh, good heavens. There are so many things about it that interest me. Of course, as a, as a trained musician, I love the music and there are other things about the music that interest me, but I don't know whether that's, that's going to just sort of deflate things now, now that we've talked about the, as you say, the meat and potatoes of the film. <laughs> right. Well, yes, perhaps we will uh, leave the discussion about the score for another time. But, uh, uh, well, uh, okay, let me throw in this final nugget um, for whatever it's uh-huh. worth. Um, because, strangely enough, so many things seem to revolve around the Laurel Canyon-Charles Manson connection, especially even in the film literature New World Order series, where there's the Frankenheimer um, uh, Manchurian candidate connection to the Manson murders and JFK and all of that. But... Um, 
Just on that note, Jerzy Kozinski was apparently on his way to Sharon Tate's house the night of the Manson murders and was delayed on uh, his flight in New York. So he didn't make it to Los Angeles. So may have actually escaped being killed himself that night. So again, just another strange part. But hey, who knows if that's even a true story. (laughs) So... This is quite a disorientating experience, James, I have to say. I feel like I'm, I'm living inside, inside somebody else's novel, perhaps a, a mixture of Gajinsky and you, so this, that is very strange. <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't tie a nice bow on everything here, because that would be much too pat away to to take a look at a movie that's so profoundly disorienting. All right, well, let's wrench ourselves out of this fun, and just for a moment, let for people in the audience who don't know about The Mind Renewed, why don't we tell them about your podcast? Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, right, okay, what's the mind renewed? Well, I, I call it the mind renewed thinking Christianly in a new world order. And uh, that I think in some cases that may put people off because they think it's going to be all about just, I don't know, Christian theology or something like that. But no, basically what I'm doing is I, mean, I, I am a Christian believer and uh, I am trying to e- explore some of the um, the, the issues of the age that we live in from my own worldview perspective, which I think, you know, we, we all do and should do. But in doing that, I'm, tr- I'm trying to kind of build some bridges uh, between, I don't really like that phrase, but it, it, it serves a purpose. There's so much misunderstanding, I think, between different camps of people out there who are trying to understand the, the world um, that I really want to bring some i don't really want to be defined by a camp and yet remain faithful to my worldview so what i'm trying to do for example is to um implore fellow believers but this is beyond uh, christian uh, to um understand that we are actually being uh, having our reality constructed or we're being lied to in so many ways um, and yet at the same time, I'm also trying to appeal to people who are um, adherents of other belief systems um, uh, and saying, look, I, I and people like me share the same kind of concerns that you do. So you see what I mean? I'm trying to break down some of these, which I think are artificial barriers, yes. barriers that are constructed by other people to get us <laughs> you know, arguing against each other. But But that doesn't mean, therefore my podcast and website is is saying well i'm not going to express anything that i believe absolutely not i think we should express what we believe but you know shake hands with each other where we where we can agree where we can and uh, advance forward where we can so that's basically what i'm trying to do with the podcast and i, I thank you james for having come on um a couple of times i think it is isn't it and, yes uh, indeed and, yeah. uh, and let me again yeah. just say that i really do respect your interview style i think you've you really do bring out some some very good conversations and in fact one of one of my favorite conversations that i've ever had was our conversation that uh is up on youtube james corbett interview anatomy of the new world order i posted it to the corbett report as interview 600 so people can go back and listen to that i think we got into quite a bit of depth about the the structure of the new world order and how that how we can really define that and understand that so that was a very good interview i hope people will re-listen to that if they've listened to it before or listened to it for the first time and hopefully start listening to your other interviews on a wide range of subjects, including even occasionally things like being there. So <laughs> yeah, hopefully this will live thank up you. to the canon of, uh, of Julian Charles' interviews. Well, thank you again for your time. I really do appreciate you coming and sharing your insights into this film. Well, thank you very much, James, for having me on. It's a, a great pr- privilege. I've been uh, you know, following your work for many years, and so it's, it's wonderful of you to have me on. Thank you. 
Well, there goes Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, and there goes another edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. But before we wrap things up, as always, let's take a look at the last month's edition of this series, FLNWO number 38, where we talked about the Purge election year with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. Lots of great comments and insights from the Corbett Report members in the crowd, leaving their comments on CorbettReport.com. So let's go through some of those. First, we had M.Claire, leaving three different functions that this movie serves in the minds of its viewers. Hyperbolic contrast, i.e. reality is absurd and violence is pretty awful, but hey, at least the real world isn't this bad, right guys? Uh, Be careful what you wish for, i.e. you don't like the police arming themselves like some futuristic Schwarzenegger army? You want anarchy? Well, look what could happen. Uh Uh-oh. And uh, three, desensitization, so that people hardly even react to news of bombings and things like that uh, these days because, hey, there's so many other distractions and other things going on, and we've seen this. We've seen this script before. Thank you for those comments, M.Claire. I think you hit on three of the important functions that this movie serves. Uh, Next up, we have Corporate Report member Nick writing, Hi, James. Just my two cents on your commentary suggesting that even movies with an anti-war sentiment still glorify war. While I totally agree in most instances, once one of my favorite movies, Johnny Got His Gun, I would say, is an exception to this. Maybe the only one. I guess the thing that differentiates it is the sheer amount of time it spends showing the tragedy of war versus the time it shows glorifying it. And uh, thank you for the suggestion, Nick. As a matter of fact, I have never, I've never read the novel. I have never seen the stage play. I've never seen the film, Johnny Got His Gun. So that is a good suggestion for me to follow up on. And uh, I think this is a theme that we'll probably return to in this FLNWO series time and again. People might remember my conversation with Brock West talking about Grave of the Fireflies. And is that really an anti-war movie? Because it wasn't intended to be such, but it certainly seemed that way the first time I watched it. It didn't really seem so much an anti-war movie the second time I watched it, interestingly. So sometimes these things can play at multiple levels. So thank you for the suggestion, Nick. I will check that out. Uh, SJ Becker 999 leaves the comment, if Hillary Clinton is progressive, it's because Bernie Sanders got a hold of the Democrat Party platform and his supporters were able to make some changes in exchange for his support. So yes, just to clarify, I hope it didn't come across in that edition of the series that I was actually saying Hillary Clinton is a progressive uh, in the sense that that's generally understood. I certainly didn't mean that. I just meant that the character in the movie is clearly modeled on Clinton and clearly modeled on the idea that Clinton is some sort of progressive reformer or whatever, which of course she isn't. She is neocon, if anything else. But that was the the way in which the movie version of this was working, and that was the level of discourse that the, the movie was portraying. So thank you for that uh, clarification and uh, and reconfirmation of that, uh, SJ Becker 999. Uh, Moxa4 leaves the comment, uh, thank you both for your amusing conversation about The Purge. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. I agree with you that this movie, at the end of the day, has to show how important it is to vote. In this case, our vote should go to the quote-unquote politically correct candidate, of course. And yes, I think that is reaffirming the political uh, narrative that uh, we're expected to take from this film. Uh, Corporate Report member Jumping Oranges leaves the comment, The Purge is about the anger-slash-revenge-authoritarian or violence to solve differences or resolve problems, which doesn't work. And sadly, this show isn't a comedy. Well, you're exactly right about that. And then Jumping Oranges leaves uh, some comments, uh, some suggestions for various viewing uh, along that line of the authoritarian revenge 
fantasy kind of movies, fantasy violence that uh, unfortunately we're probably all too familiar with. Uh, Teraba leaves the comment, You hit the nail right on the head when you mentioned the idea of the purge glorifying violence. Hollywood, like music and every other form of entertainment, is a tool. A tool to establish reality, build a narrative. It rests below the general story. But when you look at Hollywood as a whole, or the movie industry, you see the narrative. Its divisiveness, its use of violence to resolve conflict, its fear of the people who are different. All the while acting like it is doing just the opposite. So thank you for that, Taraba. I think that's a good way of articulating one of the key points that I keep coming back to, which is that no matter what these movies on the surface level appear to be trying to aim at, I think there is another level on which they're operating. And that's uh, certainly true in this uh, purge propaganda. Uh, Home Remedy Supply, our resident Texan activist, leaves some uh, a lot of different links on the Dallas police shooting, which he uh, posits as one of the sources of the purge, or at least, I would say, at least a mirror of the purge kind of idea, and uh, something that really did, I, I think, tip over this year into that, into the summer of rage, which is leading into the fall of uh, the Empire, the Republic, whatever, whatever is going on in this circus selection cycle. Um, Russell.m leaves an interesting comment. The basic idea behind Purge is not exactly new or original. Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek fame used a similar plot in a Star Trek episode, Return of the Archons, in 1967, which, uh, growing up uh, as a Trekkie in a truck-watching household, I never thought to connect Return of the Archons to this movie, but I think, I guess you're right. There is a festival going on in that episode. Although, I guess if we really want to stretch it back, I mean, the idea of Carnival as the kind of pre-Lent festival goes back hundreds, thousands of years in European history. And before that, of course, we have uh, Bacchanalia and all of those kinds of festivities. Lots of different cultures have that that time, that period where laws are inverted and roles and social order is up overturned. So I think there are um, very deep roots in the collective unconscious for this type of idea, this suspension of all rules. And I think that's one of the things that this movie series is obviously playing on. Uh, Corbett Report member Keddy leaves the note, I watched all three films in preparation, low-level propaganda and dumb storylines aside, they were entertaining. <laughs> and fair enough. I wouldn't argue with that if you're entertained. I, I don't hold that against you. I'm not some kind of snob turning my nose up at things like this. It, for people who understand these things as entertainment and view them in that way, knowing the propaganda that's at work and, defle and deflecting and defending yourself against it, I'm not going to hold that against anyone. So if you do enjoy this type of movie, well, by all means, enjoy it. Just be aware of what's going on is, I think, the minimum of what we can say about it. Uh, and then finally, uh, Orenda Review writes, uh, your comment about violence and human nature reminded me of a critique you might be interested in exploring. Uh, David Graeber wrote a book, short book called Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, where he addressed the question of violence in anarchist societies. And then uh, he, Orenda Review leaves a note, uh, a, a comment with a link to the book itself. So thank you very much for that. Um, I will check into that. I haven't read enough, Graeber. I've read bits of fragments of... <laughs> I've read fragments of the fragments of an anarchist anthropology, but not the whole thing. So that should be on my reading list as well. So... Uh, I think that about does it for the comments from last time. As always, Corporate Report members are invited, nay, exhorted, to leave your comments on this conversation and on this movie uh, in the comment section at CorbettReport.com. Of course, Corporate Report members, for as little as $1 a month, get login access so you can go and leave your comments there in the comment section and join the conversation. And it's going to be an interesting conversation this month, talking about uh, this very interesting movie and 
Well, in preparation for a very interesting book next month. Next month, we are going to be talking about American Tabloid by James Elroy. The link will be in the show notes as always. Happy reading. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.